I walked out thinking, Andrew's vamping, it'll be a while. <laughs> Good morning. If, uh, if you'd open your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. Our text is Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 this morning. Before we begin, I'd like to just pray for God's grace. God of all grace, please reveal yourself to us in your word this morning. We want to know you deeply and personally in all your glory, and we need you desperately. Only you can give us life and health and joy, the life that we need, Lord. Amen. I'm going to read the text, and I'm, I'm just going to read four through six. Janet, just FYI. Isaiah 53, four through six. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout Lent, we've been studying Isaiah chapter 53 as a way to center our lives and our thoughts on the suffering and what we call the passion of Jesus. And we do this as we prepare for the joy of resurrection and new life that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Now, it struck me this week that someone might legitimately ask why we are preaching the good news about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53 written 700 years or more before Jesus was born. Well, we're doing the same thing that's recorded in Acts chapter 8, where Philip was prompted to go visit the Ethiopian eunuch on the road south of Jerusalem. And the Ethiopian was reading Isaiah chapter 53 in his chariot, and Philip approached him, and the man asked him, What is this about? Who is this about? And Acts chapter 8, verse 35 says, Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And that's what we're doing today. We're going through the good news about Jesus from Isaiah 53. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest good news for every person on the planet. There is no doubt about that, yet it has been met overwhelmingly by unbelief. That is the point of verse 1 of this chapter, where the prophet quotes the Lord as saying, Who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And Joel made the point two weeks back that God's ways are mysterious, right? And his purposes become clear by revelation, not by human intuition or insight. Our world continues in unbelief and rejection of the good news of Jesus. And even we who believe, who enjoy the revelation from God by his word and by his spirit, continue to struggle with some degrees of unbelief or rejection of the full measure of the good news of Jesus. We are often like the man in Mark chapter 9 who said to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This morning, I hope to show you the goodness and the glory of God in order to strengthen your faith in the one true God and in his Messiah. We're going to look at human ignorance and sin. We'll look at the role of substitution. And we'll look at the role of imputation. Kind of a couple of big words, but you'll like them later. Let's step back to verse 3 for context as we enter the text for this morning. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Here is the judgment of humanity on Jesus Christ. We held him in low esteem. I'm calling it ignorance because it's an ugly word, right? Some call it misunderstanding or misconception, but there's a moral element to this bad judgment of ours. John Calvin says, it's a monstrous thing that he to whom God has given supreme authority over all the creatures should be thus trampled on and scorned. And if the reason were not assigned, it would have been universally pronounced to be ridiculous. So here in verse 4, Isaiah assigns the reason for the weakness, the pains, and the shame of Christ. Surely he took up our pain. Surely he bore our suffering. You'll see there's still an ignorance problem here, though. Listen to the human response to this grace of God. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. You see, we think as humans that we know what's going on. We think we know what God's doing. And when we don't know, we still make judgments about what God is doing. God is punishing him. God is afflicting him, they said. And we know this was the view when Jesus was crucified. The people and their leaders had done the calculations. They had come up with the conclusion that God was punishing Jesus. God was doing justice to Jesus for his own sins, for his blasphemy, most pointedly. Matthew 27, 43 records the taunting of Jesus. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. They thought God didn't want him. 
Listen to the revelation in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, God reveals very clearly what was happening at the cross. He became our substitute. Where we deserved punishment, he took it for us. Our transgressions were the cause. He suffered and died as the effect. You can't understand this verse without the idea of substitution. And there's a very great irony here. Because the people who witnessed the suffering and death of Jesus believed in their ignorance that God was crushing him for his own sins. When all the while it was for their sins. And for ours. So here's a very important point to grasp also. That this truth, that the Messiah bore the penalty for our sins as a substitute for us, which is at the very center of the gospel message, it can only be understood by revelation. No one ever worked this out by observation or by intuition or deep thinking. It must be granted to you to see it by the grace of God. And if you had stood there at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified, you too would have said with the people, he's being crucified for his own sins. You would not have said, I know what's happening here. Jesus is dying for my sins. The only way to know that is by the revelation of God in his word and by his spirit. And that is the great purpose of the Bible and of this chapter. It's to reveal what the Son of God accomplished when he suffered and died on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Punishment is the result of guilt. There are consequences for sin, and we bear true moral guilt before God for our iniquities and transgressions. The wages of sin is death, and after death comes the judgment. And finally, by his wounds we are healed. We're like the man beaten and robbed on the road to Jericho, stripped, beaten, and left half dead. We're helpless and hopeless until the good Samaritan takes pity on us bandages our wounds, binds us up, takes us in, cares for us. Sin beat us, sin robbed us, and sin left us for dead, lying on the side of the road. Not one of you in this room will escape this life without being deeply wounded by your own sin and by the sin of others. And Jesus is the only route to the healing from those wounds. So we are guilty. We are sin-wounded transgressors. We are steeped in our iniquity. And yet the Bible tells us very clearly that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now someone might legitimately ask, 
Could God not have shown his love in some other way? What about ending world hunger or eliminating natural disasters or providing some superfood that guarantees health and longevity? But God, in the substitutionary death of Jesus, has done something of infinitely greater value for us. He's opened up the way to everlasting life with him, taking upon himself the consequences of our sin that separate us from him. He paid our debt in full, and the judgment that should have come down on us has been fully served by Jesus Christ as our substitute. Two outcomes are described here in verse 5. First, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And second, we are healed from the consequences of our sin. Now, peace is a declaration of a relationship, of a state of a relationship. And at the moment of conversion, it's instantaneous and complete. We have peace with God. God has no further hostility toward us. Instead, he loves us completely and fully. But healing is a process. In our union with Christ, healing has begun, and one day it will be complete. That's the hope of resurrection. That is the hope of God's great plan for new creation. In Revelation 22, Chapter, or verse 2, speaks of the new city of God. We read, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Right? We sang about that this morning. The beauty, the goodness of the new creation that comes with resurrection. Now, to this point, the text of chapter 53 has centered very much on the servant and the servant's work. He's been the subject. Joel preached about his birth and life of suffering and rejection, one through three. Verses four and five focus on his mission and his substitutionary suffering and death. But in verse six, there's a striking change of subject. Verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophet gathers us all together, all humanity together, and confesses for us the core sin of self-centeredness and self-will, in which we fail to obey our Maker. Even we who have placed our trust in Jesus as Savior many years ago must see ourselves in this statement. When you've been a Christian for a while, it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that maybe other people need a Savior more than you do. But salvation is more than a one-time event. It's also a life of ongoing dependence on Jesus. You need him as much today as the day you first believed. This next phrase, each one of us has turned to his own way, moves us from the universal statement, the general statement, to the very specific and personal statement. 
Each and every one of us has our own unique pattern of sin. Each of us has turned to our own way. Your sins are probably quite different from the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you. And often theirs seem more dangerous and more troublesome, right? It's easy for us to look at others and see that. But the prophet is leaving no room for you to consider others more sinful than yourself or you less guilty than them. Quite the opposite is true, in fact. The more honestly we face up to sin, the more we grasp what Calvin calls our wretchedness and poverty, the more we take personal responsibility for our willful defiance and our self-centeredness, the greater will be our capacity to turn with our whole heart to the remedy of Jesus Christ. When you know you're ruined, you can run to Jesus for salvation and relief and healing. And the more you come to appreciate your need for a Savior, the deeper your affections for Him will become. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. So we've talked about the problem of human ignorance and unbelief and the need for revelation from God to understand his purposes. And we've talked about Jesus' role as a substitute. Enduring the punishment of our sin, I want to make one more point about what it makes for Jesus to be our substitute. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 are among my most beloved verses in Scripture. It reads, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whom there is no deceit. The King James Version had it, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That word impute comes from the Latin root from the field of accounting, and it refers to attributing or charging something to someone's account. In English, we sometimes use it as a way to refer to an accusation that someone's guilty of something. And that's really what's happening here at the end of verse 6 when we read, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How did Jesus become our substitute? Why is it that he can suffer for our sins? It's because the Lord has imputed our sins to him. He's charged our sins to Jesus. So this example is trivial, but it'll suffice, I think. When I take the family skiing, we stop for lunch, and everybody orders and takes what they want from the cafeteria line. And we line up, and I say to the cashier, these next five, they're all mine. Right? And so everybody runs through, and I pay the bill. The cashier imputes their debts to me. Right? Someone has to pay these charges. They pay or I pay for them. 
One of the commentaries I read was by a guy named Alec Motyer. He says that this phrase, the Lord laid on him, literally means the Lord caused to meet on him. Okay? He says this describes God's act of gathering into one place, onto one substitutionary victim, the sins of all the sinners over all the time whom the Lord purposed to save. The servant is the solution of the Lord to the needs of sinners. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, if all our sins have been laid on Jesus, then they no longer lie on us. That's why Romans 8.1 can read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, there's one other feature of imputation that we have to trust and treasure to receive this truth in its full glory. Okay? Imputation works in both directions. Jesus not only took our sin and guilt, but he also gave us his righteousness and his innocence. To those who trusted him, the Lord grants, as Romans 1.17 says, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel message is this, We who trust in Jesus as Savior exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness. God counts his righteousness as our own. Praise the Lord. That's how we have peace with God. Verse 5 says, The punishment that brought us peace is on him. That's how it happens. Because he's taken our iniquity and sin and given us his righteousness and innocence. That's how we have healing from our sin sickness. So what's the application of this remarkable truth that takes us to the very heart of the gospel? First, Let us enjoy peace with God. Let us rest in that. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We must learn to rest and trust in the benevolent love of Jesus who bore our guilt. God no longer condemns us for our sin when we have placed our trust in him. He no longer condemns us for our sin, even our persistent sin, even the ones we can't seem to conquer. You earnestly want to follow Jesus. You're a longtime believer, perhaps. And sometimes you seem to be making progress in this journey towards holiness and sanctification. But there are some sins that just lurk below the surface waiting for an opportunity to exploit a weakness 
so they can break out and cover you with guilt again. It's your own unique way of straying from God, of turning to your own way. God wants you to know that Jesus died not only for sins in general, but he died for your sins in particular. He died for your persistent sin in particular. The sins that were gathered up and laid on Jesus included your very own way of straying. And peace comes from knowing that your sins, not just sins in general, but your sins were laid on Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who trust that God has laid their sins on Jesus, who has counted their sins against Jesus. He will never count them against you. That's his promise. Romans 5.1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can enjoy greater peace with God. But secondly, we can pursue deeper repentance. This truth that God has laid our sins on Jesus can be your greatest motivation to fight against sin. To fight against the sins that so easily entangle us. You have to be convinced that your own sins were laid on Jesus. If you take seriously that you were the one for whom Christ died, that he was crucified for you, it becomes clear that you cannot continue to pile those sins higher. If Jesus suffered because of your pride, your lust, your greed, your self-indulgence, then your heart will be stirred to greater repentance, to deeper repentance. Who crucified Jesus? There's a song, a new hymn that uh, Stuart Townsend wrote, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And in that song, there's a line that says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. If you can see that the sins that have prevailed over you were truly laid on Jesus, it will strengthen you in your fight against sin. If you meditate on the deep love of Jesus for you displayed on the cross, you will grow to love him more deeply. And with deeper affection for him, you will hate the sin that hurts him. People of God, this is good news. It is good news that he has borne our sin. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, your word says that blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Lord, may we know and understand that with clarity and confidence. May we trust in Jesus for all of our needs.
Oh God, let us enjoy deep and lasting peace that flows from your great love. And grant us by your spirit to have a deep love for Jesus. Fill us with a love that strengthens us in our fight against sin, we pray. And all God's people say, amen.